Thank you, Jim. Thank you. Well, that's so nice of Jeff. Thank you for that kind introduction. And it makes me feel so old, though. Uh, and I understand here at the second service on Saturday night, we've got a lot of the people who volunteer and work in other areas. So thank you for your service to this church. I've heard about this church for a number of years. And I heard Jeff preach when he was at Savannah. And I hope you know, you have a great preacher here in uh, Jeff Vines. And he's doing a fantastic job. Sometimes when I'm introduced as being from the state of Kentucky, people get a little nervous because Kentucky has a reputation for being a backward state. And Kentucky is a little bit of a backward state. A friend of mine emailed me and said, I didn't know how backward your state was till I went to the zoo in Kentucky. He said, you go to other zoos and they got the name of the animal in English and then in parentheses they got the name of the animal in Latin. But you go to a zoo in Kentucky, you got the name of the animal in English and in parentheses you got a recipe. That's not exactly true. We're not quite that backward. But even though I'm from Kentucky, I hope you listen. Because I want to talk with you about what I believe is a really important subject, and that is a purposeful life. About 150 years ago, a German philosopher by the name of Friedrich Nietzsche had a very pertinent saying. He said, if a man has a why to live, he can endure anyhow. If we know that God has an ultimate purpose for our life, we can go through all kinds of disappointments and discouragements. That's why in recent years a lot has been written about the need for a purpose in life. Rick Warren wrote that famous book, The Purpose Driven Life, sold millions of copies, blessed hundreds of thousands of people. Two weeks ago I was reading an article in Forbes magazine And it was about five characteristics that great leaders make that average leaders don't have. And great leaders have a clearly defined purpose, while average leaders just show up for work. Purpose fuels passion and a work ethic. And Bob Buford, in a well-known book, Halftime, encourages people about to enter retirement, to move from being driven by success to being driven in a desire for achievement or significance, he calls it. Because so many people, when they near retirement, they lose their sense of purpose because their purpose is all wrapped up in their occupation and they wither up and die. But Jesus Christ said, I've come that you might have life and have it to the fullest. One of the reasons we ought to be fired up about the gospel every day of our lives is that Jesus Christ offers three things that the world can never provide. The hope of eternal life, the forgiveness of our sins, and the promise of a purpose for every day. Now, with that in mind, I'd like for you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes, the 11th chapter. If you don't have a Bible, we'll put these scripture on the screen so that you can follow. The entire book of Ecclesiastes is written about the purpose of life. It's written by King Solomon, who was determined to find out what made life meaningful. And he was a man of resource, so he could indulge in building projects and wine and women and entertainment. But after he tried them all, he concluded they're all dead ends. They don't fulfill. Thirty-five times in the book, he uses the word meaningless. The King James says vanity. It doesn't make sense. 
He said it's like chasing after the wind. Life's a miserable business. And the whole world, everything the world had to offer him, left him empty. You know who to agree with Solomon today? Actor Brad Pitt. I like Brad Pitt. I think he's a great actor. But he was interviewed in Rolling Stone magazine. And here's what he had to say. Man, I know all these things are supposed to seem important to us. The car, the condo, our version of success. But if that's the case, why is the general feeling out there reflecting more impotence, isolation, desperation, loneliness? If you ask me, I say toss all this. We've got to find something else. I don't have all the answers yet, but the emphasis now is on success and personal gain. I'm the guy who's got everything, Brad Pitt said. I'm sitting in it, and I'm telling you, that's not it. That's what Solomon concluded. He tried everything the world had to offer. And he said it's meaningless. It doesn't make sense. You live, you die, and it's over. But Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and have it to the fullest. Now Solomon hints at that conclusion in the final two chapters of Ecclesiastes. You know, sometimes people learn their best lessons from their worst mistakes. And Solomon made some mistakes. The entire book of Ecclesiastes is kind of a combination of his vast wisdom and his valuable experience. Wise people learn from their mistakes. Wiser people learn from the mistakes of others. So what I want to do here tonight is to read through Ecclesiastes 11 and 12 and learn what Solomon says makes life meaningful. And the first thing he says is life is meaningful when we start early and invest wisely for the future. He says in verse 1 of chapter 11, Cast your bread upon the waters, for after many days you will find it again. What's that mean, cast your bread upon the water? Maybe you've heard that all your life. Warren Wearsby says, this is best paraphrased, send out your grain, your bread, in ships. And many days afterward, the ships will return with a profit. Solomon was into world trade, so it's not surprising that he uses a merchant illustration here to make his point. He would send out his ships with valuable cargo, and when they returned, his investment, his patience would be rewarded. He says in verse 2, Give portions to seven, yes to eight, for you do not know what disaster may come upon the land. We say, don't put all your eggs in one basket. Solomon said, don't put all your grain in one ship, seven or eight, because you don't know there could be a shipwreck. Be a diverse investor, he says. Cast your bread upon the water when you're early, and after you're patient, it'll return with interest. We have a guy in our church who's in the animal extermination business. You have a varmint under your porch, you call him, he captures it, takes it away. One of my friends saw him out on the city limits releasing a raccoon into the wild. And my friend said, I thought you killed those animals once you captured them. And the guy said, oh no, this is a young raccoon. It could occupy three or four other porches in the course of its lifetime. He said, you you don't want to jeopardize your future. See? See what that is? That's casting your bread upon the water. That's making an investment for the future. And Solomon says, now start early. Be a wise investor. Now his focus in this passage is on finances. We all know that there's a whole lot more to meaning of life than have enough money saved up for retirement. You can be a multimillionaire and be a spiritual disaster. But this is a wise place to start. Be a good steward of your money when you're young Then as you get older, you put less emphasis on accumulation of things and you can give your attention to the things of the spirit that matter. 
If you have adequate financial resources in the last chapter of life, Solomon says you can be generous. He says in verse 3, if clouds are full of water, they can pour rain on the earth. But if you don't have any moisture in your cloud, you can't be a blessing and you can't be generous to anybody. And if you have some resources, you're ready for disaster that may come and you don't panic. Verse 10, he says, so then banish anxiety from your heart and cast off troubles of your body. If there is a disaster, if the economy collapses, you don't panic because you've been a wise steward of your resources. And you have free time to serve and you don't have to spend most of your last days at a time-consuming job. If you've been a wise investor from the time you're young. We have a guy in our church who worked as a security guard at GE all his life from the time he's 19 years of age. He asked me a while back to go to lunch with him. I walked out to the parking lot and he's driving a new Jaguar. And I said, Gary, you got a new car. I said, yeah, Joan and I, his wife is a school teacher, Joan and I are going to retire and we thought we'd get a new car for retirement. I said, Gary, how old are you? He said, 58. I said, Gary, have you inherited some money or something? 58 years old, buying a new Jaguar, going to retire? Now, you, you may think I sound like I'm from Kentucky, but i got to tell you, Gary is from eastern Kentucky, and he is really a hillbilly. And he, he said, oh, no, Bob, I didn't inherit no money. My parents ain't got no money. I grew up in the trailer park. Well, how is this? You're 58 years old, going to retire, new Jaguar. He said, you know, when I went to work for GE... First year, I was 19 years old, they had a credit union with matching funds. They would match every dollar that you put in there for savings. And I said to Joan, that's a good thing there. Let's put in $100 every month. Now, the first year, you put in $100 a month, they really feel it. But after that, you don't even miss the money. And he said, Bob, you know about this thing they got out there called compound interest? Well, so he might be from Kentucky, but he's pretty sharp financially. He said, that money started accumulating. We put a little more in there. We take some out sometimes, put it in the stock market. And now we're 58 years old, and we'll, we're worth well over a million dollars. So we decided we'd retire. I said, Gary, would you do me a favor? Would you come to my staff meeting this Monday? We've just introduced a 401k program to our church staff with matching funds. And I don't think a lot of young guys understand how important it is to start early to be a wise investor. Would you just come and tell your story? He said, oh, no, Bob, I ain't no public speaker. You ain't getting me in front of no people. No way I'm going to do that. I can't do that. I said, oh, look, you don't have to make a speech. I'll just interview you. We'll sit on the stage. It'll be relaxed like we're talking today. I didn't tell him that we had 300 people on staff. <laughs> and so he finally, I twisted his arm, he finally agreed to come. But when he walked into our chapel and he saw all these people, he was so nervous. The first two questions I asked, he was as stiff as a board. I said, Gary, are you a little nervous? He said, nervous, Bob. I ain't had no bowel movement for three days worrying about this stuff. <laughs> you know, when he said that, the whole staff burst out laughing, kind of like you did. And he endeared himself to them. And they started to listening to what he had to say. Let me tell you some of the things he told our church staff. He said, look, don't live in as big a house as you can possibly afford. Be willing to live in a smaller house. Don't be house poor. He said, Joan would say to me, you know, Gary, some of our friends live in nicer homes than we live in. And I said, Joan, you got me. You got to be satisfied with that. That's enough. Don't drive as nice a car as you can, you can afford. Regard your car as a means of transportation and not a status symbol. 
And don't use those credit cards unless you pay them off at the end of the month because that interest will eat you alive. And don't think you've got to take an expensive vacation to have an exciting time with your kids just because everybody else is. You can do some simple things with your kids and it's meaningful to them. He said, my grade school kids came home and said, Mom and Dad, all our friends are going to Florida for spring break. So we piled our kids in the car. We drove them an hour up the interstate, took them to the state park, let them swim. We told them that was Florida. They didn't know the difference. We came back. A lot less hassle. Now, I wouldn't recommend lying to your kids, but you get the point. In this culture that we live in of instant gratification, we think we've got to have the most expensive, the biggest deal in order to have a meaningful life. But somebody said maturity is the ability to postpone pleasure. The key is to start early, be a wise steward of what God entrusts to you. You cast your bread upon the water. After many days it will return. Here's a second principle about a meaningful life. Solomon says stay active. Establish a mindset of working consistently all your life. He says in verse 4. Whoever watches the wind will not plant. Whoever looks at the clouds will not reap. He's talking about a lazy farmer who's looking for an excuse not to work. He says, well, the weather isn't ideal today. We don't know what's going to happen, so he doesn't do anything. He says in verse 6. Sow your seed in the morning, and at evening let not your hands be idle, for you do not know which will succeed, whether this or that, or whether both will do equally well. Sow your seed in the morning. When you're a young person, every day you go to work. You do diligence. But in the evening, when you're older, you keep on working because you don't know uh, what's going to be the most productive. You see, some people have this mindset today. They're going to work like crazy when they're young so that they can reach a certain point when they're 55 or 60 that they can retire and be free of responsibility and sit in a bathtub and look at the ocean the rest of their life. They can't wait to retire and have nothing to do. A younger man asked an older guy who was about to retire, said, what are you going to do in retirement? He said, the first year... I'm going to sit on the front porch in a rocking chair. What are you going to do then? The second year, I'm going to start rocking. (laughs) Well, if that's your philosophy about the future, you're going to be a very unhappy person because there's a direct correlation between your sense of productivity and your self-worth. And Solomon is saying, make up your mind. You're going to be a worker consistently all your life. You're never going to quit producing. Listen, you're created in the image of God, and God works. And when you sit around, and you do nothing, and you're not productive every day, pretty soon you feel like a giant slug, and your self-worth goes down the tubes. We got a guy in our church who sold his business for $8 million when he was 38 years old. He said to me, Bob, I don't have to work another day of my life. Three months later, he bought another business and went back to work. He said, I don't need the money, but I need the job wise man. Don't quit being active. Don't quit before the finish line. You can look forward to retirement when you have a change of pace and there's not enough pressure, but you look forward to it as a time of service when you have more time to do things for God, not a time of indulgence. I retired seven years ago after 40 years in a located ministry. But I didn't retire to play golf every day. I do mentoring groups for preachers once a month. I write a blog every week. I travel and speak. I do uh, 
Bible study videos for small groups and a number of things like that. And I've discovered this chapter of my life has been the greatest chapter. Folks, you've got something to look forward to. It's a great day when the kids are grown and the bills are paid and the dog's dead. You can have a whole new future for you. Solomon says, Solomon says in, in verse 5, As you do not know the path of the wind... Or how the body is formed in a mother's womb, so you can't understand the work of God, the maker of all things. God's ways are greater than our ways. And you need to understand, if you sow your seed in the evening, even though you're getting older, your days of greatest productivity may be yet ahead of you. Your your greatest accomplishment in the kingdom of God may be yet to be. You think of how that was true in the Bible. Moses was 80 years old when he began to lead the children of Israel out of Egypt. Caleb was 85 years old when he asked Joshua to let him lead a battle into the toughest mountain territory. Billy Graham was 83 years old when he came to our city and conducted a crusade and hundreds were won to Christ. We have a guy in our church who came to me. He plays in our orchestra and he came to me and he said, I must be a crazy old man. I'm 91 years old and I just bought a new trombone. Sam Rosenberg lived to be 94. The doctor said one of the reasons he lived so long was that he had the sense of purpose. He was serving God and blowing on that trombone and exercising his, uh, his lungs. John Piper, a theologian, wrote an article about the contribution of older people. At 65, Winston Churchill became the prime minister of England. At 70, Benjamin Franklin helped draft the Declaration of Independence. At 77, John Glenn became the oldest person to go into space. At 89, Albert Schweitzer ran a hospital in Africa. At 93, Strom Thurmond, the longest-serving senator in U.S. history, won re-election after promising not to run again at age 99. (laughs) And he concludes his article by saying, So all you boomers just breaking into Medicare... Gird up your loins, pick up your cane, head for the gym, and get fit for the last lap. Fix your eyes on the face of Jesus at the finish line. There'll be plenty of time for R&R in the resurrection. For now, there's happy work to be done. That's what Solomon's saying. Stay active. You're going to have a meaningful life? Don't quit. Find something of service uh, in your older years. Here's the third principle from Ecclesiastes. Be joyful. Live in the precious present. Verse 8. However many years a man may live, let him enjoy them all, but let him remember the days of darkness, for they will be many. Solomon is a realist. He doesn't always tell us what we want to hear, but he's telling us the truth. He said, look, you don't know how many years you're going to live. However many years a man may live. Well, the Bible says the average life expectancy is 70 or 80 years, but the truth is you don't know where the finish line is going to be. You could die at 35. You could die at... 55. You don't know when the finish line is coming up. So you better enjoy today because it could be your last. He says, there'll be many days of darkness. You see, a lot of people say, well, I'm going to enjoy life someday when I get all my finances straightened out. When my kids get over their troubles. When I get over this health problem. I'm going through days of darkness and I'm miserable right now. And Solomon says, look, there are going to be days of darkness. But however many years you live, you enjoy them all. Because if you're going to sit around and wait and say, when life is absolutely perfect, that's when I'm going to rejoice and have fun and enjoy life, you, you may never get there. Because we all struggle with days of darkness. So enjoy every day. 
He says in verse 9, Be happy, young man, while you're young, and let your heart give you joy in the days of your youth. Don't say, someday in the future, when I get all these things ready, that's when I'm going to enjoy life. I read a book called Chicken Soup for the Soul at Work by Jack Canfield. You know this whole series, Chicken Soup books. And this one had a story about a guy named Jerry who owned a restaurant. And Jack Canfield says that Jerry was the most joyful, most upbeat person he'd ever met. He said, you go into his restaurant, no matter when it was, no matter what was going on, you say, Jerry, how you doing? He always had the same answer. Doing great, any better be twins. Doing wonderful, any better be twins. One day he took him aside and said, you know what, Jerry, you're the most upbeat, positive person I've ever met. Tell me, what's the secret of your joy? And Jerry said, it's easy. I just choose to be joyful. No, he said, it's got to be deeper than that. What is it? No, he said, every morning when I get, wake up, before I get out of bed, I say to myself, this is the day the Lord has made, and I can be miserable and ruin this day and drag other people down, or I can rejoice and be glad, and I just choose to rejoice and be glad regardless of the circumstances. Well, one day, Jerry's restaurant got robbed, and the thief panicked at the end and shot, nearly killed Jerry. And Jerry said, there I was, lying in a pool of my own blood. I felt my life ebbing out for me, and I thought to myself, I can choose to live or I can choose to die. I choose to live. But when the EMS workers came, he said, I could tell by their comments, they didn't think I was going to make it. But I was still conscious when we got to the ER room. But I could tell by the expression on the faces of the doctors and the nurses in the ER room, they didn't think I was going to live. But he said, a big burly nurse bent over me and she said, are you allergic to anything? And with a raspy voice, I said, yes. And when I said that, the whole ER room stopped to hear what it was. She said, what are you allergic to? And I said, bullets. (laughs) He said, the whole ER room burst out laughing. And she said, is there anything else? And I said, yes, I choose to live, not to die. Please operate on me as though I'm going to live. The intensity room in the ER room picked up. And Canfield writes, I think, Six weeks later, there was Jerry back at the restaurant. He said, Jerry, how you doing? He said, doing great. Any better, I'll be twins. I believe that. You know, we think that our joy is directly connected to circumstances. But the Bible says, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say, rejoice. God has given you today. You're alive. You have people here in in your world who care about you. You've got reason to rejoice and be glad. Don't waste today. Learn to be joyful and soak up the precious present. One final thing from Solomon about finishing strong and having a purposeful life. He says, think eternally. Aging is inevitable, but the best is yet to be. Ecclesiastes 12, chapter, verse 1. Remember your creator in the days of your youth before the days of trouble come and the years approach when you will say, I find no pleasure in them. Let me say to those of you who are younger, he's saying to you, don't have this attitude. I'm going to indulge in the pleasures of this world. And then when I get older, I will turn my life completely over to God. Two things wrong with that. One is it's very selfish because what you're saying is I'm going to give my best years of health to me and I'll give God the leftovers. And it's also very dangerous Because you can get addicted to sins. You can wound other people. You can die in your sin. You can lose influence. He said, you remember your creator in your youth. You give God everything you have. 
before the days of trouble come. And he's talking about trouble physically. And it goes on in this chapter to describe what normally happens when you age. And he uses picturesque language to describe the aging process. And we have to guess in some places what he means. He says, for example, in verse 3, the keepers of the house tremble. I take that that the legs get shaky and you're trembling. You've got to lean on a cane. The strong men stoop. The shoulders that were once erect with a proud posture are now bent over. The grinders cease because they are few. What do you think that is? Yeah, your teeth fall out. and You can't eat peanut brittle the way you once did. Those looking through the windows grow dim. The eyes uh, get cataracts and you have to use bifocals. Uh, the doors to the street are closed and the sound of grinding fades. There's a loss of hearing. And you don't hear the grinding of the mill wheel as distinctly as you once did. And all their song, or oh, oh, when men rise at the sound of a bird. You know, when you're young, you sleep all night long. You sleep eight hours. When you get older, you wake up at the slightest sound or you wake up in the middle of the night for other purposes. And all their songs grow faint. Somebody can really sing well when they're young and then they get the, the older and lesser George Beverly Shea, their, their voice begins to grow faint. When men are afraid of heights and dangers in the streets. I used to be able to climb a ladder and clean out my eaves spout, no problem. Now I, I'm almost 70 years old. I climb a ladder, my hands are shaking. My son said, Dad, get down from there. Dad, you don't belong up there. And there's dangers in the street. You ever see a 90-year-old man drive 15 miles an hour to, Holding everybody up. And a teenager is zoom, zoom, zooming around. It ought to be just the opposite. The old man's got a couple of weeks to live. He might as well zoom, zoom, zoom. And let the teenagers slow down. He says in verse 5, When the almond tree blossoms. What's that? Your hair turns white. And the grasshopper drags himself along. Say, See that old man over there? I saw him play basketball years ago. He is quick as a grasshopper. Now he's dragging himself along, holding everybody up. He says in verse 5, desire is no longer stirred. You know, I've studied this and studied this. I cannot figure out what this one means. If if you've got an idea what that means, come up to me afterward and and explain that to me. I said that to a group a while back. This older lady came up afterward and tried to explain to me what it meant. I understand. I get it. He said in verse 5, then the man goes to his eternal home and mourners go about the streets. Well, the guy dies. And the mourners get in a funeral procession and go to the cemetery and they're saying, they're weeping and crying, saying, I don't know what we're going to do without him. Life will never be the same. I don't think I can go on. And they go back to the church and have a picnic and laugh and tell jokes like you never even existed. That's the truth, isn't it? And it doesn't sound very appealing. That doesn't sound like you've got much to look forward to. Listen. That's why the people in that world out there hate aging so badly. Because they get closer and closer to death and it seems meaningless. They say, oh, I'm 30 years old. This is terrible. And they turn 40 and they get in a midlife crisis and run off with somebody in the chat room or something. That's why they're always trying to appear younger than they are. I mean, we've got facelifts and liposuction and, and breast implants and... Joan Rivers, so, you know, why are we doing that? You know, Paul Harvey used to tell about a guy who put braces on his false teeth so he'd look younger. It's just silly stuff that people do. It's all meaningless. But there's one thing that sustains you as you age. And that is, if you have a hope beyond this world. 
you still got a purpose. Solomon summarizes it like this. The silver cord is going to be severed. The spinal cord. You're going to have some back problems as you get older. And the golden bowl is going to be broken. Your mind begins to fade. And your body's going to return to dust. And it's all going to appear meaningless unless, unless there's something beyond this world. And in verse 13 and 14 of chapter 12, he summarizes it like this. Here's the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God. Keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether good or evil. Two words that I want you to underscore. The word duty. This is the duty of man. Here's your purpose, folks. Your purpose is be obedient to God. Do your duty. The world out there is telling you your purpose is to... Follow your feelings. If it feels good, do it. Follow your heart. If the chemistry's right, go for it. Let me tell you what. The Bible says, abstain from the evil desires that war against your soul. If you're going to just do what you feel like doing, you're going to wound a lot of people, and you're going to be a disaster eventually yourself. Jesus said, if you love me, you keep my commandments. And sometimes the way you show the Lord Jesus Christ that you love him, you just do your duty whether you feel like it or not. You may never know your ultimate purpose until you get to heaven. Maybe your purpose is to show some younger people how a Christian is supposed to age or how a Christian is supposed to die. And you keep up a joyful spirit. And you keep being a joyful uh, steward. And you keep doing the things of God as an example to others. But you just do your duty. And then the second word is the word judgment. God is going to bring every deed into judgment. And we usually fear judgment There will be evil that will be punished, he says, but also the good things. As we stand before God in judgment, the sins are forgiven through the blood of Christ. The good deeds are rewarded, and we enter into the joy of our Lord. Jesus will say, well done, good and faithful servant. We sing that song when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as a sun. We've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. Your purpose in life is to go to heaven when you die and take as many people as you can with you. And that purpose never changes. I like the way the Apostle Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians. See if I can remember it. He said, therefore, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away. Yet inwardly, we're being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. Because what is seen is temporary. What is unseen is eternal. For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building of God, eternal in the heavens, not made by human hands. Therefore, we are confident. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So we walk by faith, not by sight. We actually would prefer, he says, to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Folks, your purpose is to fix your eyes on the things that are eternal. Realizing that the best is yet to be. This world is not the end. The city fathers of Charlotte, North Carolina not too long ago, asked Dr. Billy Graham if he would come for a luncheon in his honor. They just wanted to say thanks for what he meant to that community. And at first he refused because his health is not the best and he's a humble guy, but they said, look, you don't have to make a speech or anything. We just want to say thank you. And he came. 
And a number of nice things were said and some gifts given to Dr. Billy Graham. And finally the, day, the time came when he stood behind the podium. And he said, I feel a little bit this afternoon like uh, that great physicist, Dr. Albert Schweitzer, whom Time Magazine named the man of the year. But in his older years, Schweitzer was traveling on a train from Princeton, and the conductor came down the aisle punching everybody's ticket. But when we got to Albert Schweitzer, Schweitzer couldn't find his ticket. He's looking in his pants pocket and his vest pocket, rifling through his briefcase, couldn't find it. And finally the conductor said, Dr. Schweitzer, I know who you are. Don't worry about it. I'm sure you have a ticket. He went on. But the conductor got to the back of the train and turned around, and there was Albert Schweitzer on his hands and knees still looking for his ticket. And he came back up and says, Dr. Schweitzer, don't worry about it. I know who you are. And Schweitzer said, son, I know who I am. I just don't know where I'm going. (laughs) Then Billy Graham said, I want you to notice tonight that I'm wearing a new suit. He said, I used to be a pretty fastidious dresser, but I've gotten a little slovenly in my old age. But my children, my grandchildren insisted I get a new suit for this occasion. I want you to take good note of this suit, Billy Graham said, because you're going to see it one more time. I've asked that I be buried in this suit. But next time you see this suit, I don't want you to think about the suit. I want you to remember, I know who I am and I know where I'm going. That's your purpose too. It never changes. Fear God. Keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of man. And one day God will say, well done. Well done. Good and faithful servant. Let's pray. Father, would you forgive us when we get so caught up in this temporary world, we think our purpose is education or entertainment, indulgence, even relationships. Remind us that our purpose is to serve you. And our purpose is one day to spend eternity with you. Forgive our many sins through the blood of Christ. That when we stand before you in judgment, we will hear you say, well done. Enter into the joy of your Lord. We pray this in the strong and saving name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.